Hello, and welcome to Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. I'm Karen Stanbridge, and in this episode, I'll be bringing you interviews with some of the scholars whose work appears in the May 2020 issue of the CRS. Patrick Parnaby is here to talk about the article that he's written with Crystal Weston on role residual among retired police officers. And from the Committing Sociology section of the journal, Lauren Montgomery will explain how grad students can reduce the isolation and competition of grad studies by challenging conventional ways of doing academic work. But first, we'll hear from Xavier Saint-Denis. Dr. Saint-Denis has produced some of the first peer-reviewed social science research on the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's get started. For weeks now, Canadians have been living in various levels of lockdown because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But as sociologists, we've been aware from the start that not everyone is at equal risk of exposure. The conditions of life facing different groups make them more or less susceptible to the virus. And now we have some peer-reviewed social scientific research to confirm this, thanks to Xavier Saint-Denis. Hi, yes, uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto. My research is mostly in the area of the sociology of work, uh, education, and stratification and mobility. Dr. Saint-Denis' research note is entitled Sociodemographic Determinants of Occupational Risks of Exposure to COVID-19 in Canada. It'll be available online at the CRS in advance of the August issue. Dr. Saint-Denis explains what motivated him to engage with this research. So the COVID-19 pandemic um, has put to the forefront um, a number of economic inequalities. And uh, I really wanted to try and tackle this. Um, So sociologists are especially interested in occupations and in the role of occupational characteristics uh, in social stratification in general, right? So uh, occupations are often used uh, to build class measures, um, uh, as well as research on the, the composition of occupations. So for example, feminized occupations um, being associated, working in a feminized occupation being associated with an earning uh, earnings penalty. Um, so what I wanted to do is to kind of leverage that um, uh, theoretical framework and um, ask or explore uh, how certain characteristics of jobs people hold uh, were related to uh, health risk uh, or health risks in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. But how does one assess risk of exposure to COVID-19 of Canadian occupations when workplaces are closed, RDCs are inaccessible, and so many of us are in lockdown working from home? Dr. Saint-Denis explains. What I'm using is, uh, as an outcome variable, is what I call an occupational risk of exposure uh, to COVID-19. Um, that measure of risk is derived from a database called ONET, uh, which is a U.S. database uh, that provides a lot of details about um, the job tasks and uh, work context of, worker, of workers um, across detailed occupations. Um, so one of the questions is the level of physical proximity. Uh, that workers have uh, with other individuals at work um, and going from you know never close to anybody to uh, touching shoulders 
for example. Um, the other variables that I, variable that I used uh, as a measure of occupational risk of exposure is whether um, individuals are exposed to infections or diseases at work. Uh, so basically the question is how often. Um, and here the assumption is that if individuals are in occupations where they interact frequently with people with infections or diseases, they're, they're probably more likely to cross path and, and, and interact with people who are infected by COVID-19. And for the Canadian data, stats can, of course. Uh, so in my case, I leveraged aggregated uh, data uh, that is published on Statistics Canada's website, showing the number of people who work in those occupations um, by gender, education, age, uh, and one of uh, the three following status, so immigration status, visible minority status, and uh, Aboriginal identity, which is the measure that Statistics Canada used in the 2016 census uh, to capture Indigenous uh, identity. So um, I, I tried to leverage that data, and um, I think uh, that these variables are also very important variables because they allow to highlight possible disparities in occupational risk of exposure to COVID-19 uh, between groups for which we don't have um, epidemiological data. So what did Dr. Saint-Denis find? Well, lots of things, but here are a few highlights. I guess the, the, the first piece of information that, that I think is uh, interesting, uh, it's a very, very general piece of information though, is that the overall occupational risk of exposure to COVID-19 across the employed Canadian population, approximately 45% of Canadians work in jobs where um, they are uh, moderately, moderately close or very close to other individuals, uh, whether they're colleagues or uh, customers, uh, etc. And another 50% are slightly closed. Close. So they share an office uh, or they work on a construction site where they are in relatively close physical proximity to, to others. Um, so, so being close to other people at work is, is, is a, characteristic, a characteristic of most jobs Canadians have. Um, and so, so, so this is why we can say that, that, that physical distancing uh, measures and um, workplace closures uh, took so much importance um, because, because, because of the, the, the context uh, in which most Canadian workers uh, work. Um, now, in terms of exposure to infections and diseases, which is, which is the, the, the second variable that I'm using for occupational risk of exposure, um, the distribution is, is quite different. Um, there's about 8% of Canadian workers who are exposed to infection, infections or diseases once a week or more, uh, as much as every day. Uh, so 8% um, is, is, is a much smaller number. Um, workers in health occupations or frequently exposed to infections or diseases. Uh, and in most other occupations, um, that uh, workers score, uh, score quite low on that measure. So those are some of the general results. How do they break down along socio-demographic lines? Uh, what I also wanted to know is whether there were um, uh, differences by gender, by age, by immigration status, visible minority status, and indigenous identity, uh, as well as by, uh, by education. And what I found, and I, I just want to highlight that, uh, according to, to the results for both scores, uh, women uh, faced a higher occupational risk of exposure uh, than men. In regression results, I show that this is actually due or explained by the fact that uh, women tend to work in, uh, uh, in broad occupations or, or broad occupational categories where the occupational risk of exposure is high. Uh, so the, 
the health occupation, sales and services, and then education, et cetera. Um, so these are uh, uh, highly feminized occupations, and they're also occupations that score high uh, on occupational risk of risks of exposure. Um, and so the uneven comp gender composition of, a, uh, of broad occupational categories on the Canadian labor market seems to be playing a large role uh, in explaining why uh, women are facing uh, greater occupational risks of exposure to COVID-19. In addition to the results pertaining to gender, Dr. Saint-Denis was also concerned with how risk of exposure was affected by occupational income. I also produced tables that break down workers be uh, or occupations between um, low-income and non-low-income occupations. And uh, those results uh, suggest that workers who work in low-income occupations uh, tend to also be in occupations that have a higher occupational risk of exposure to COVID-19 uh, on the physical proximity score, uh, meaning that workers in low-income occupation are also in high-risk occupations. Uh, th that piece of information was really important to tie the health dimension with uh, the income uh, or economic dimension of, of the, the, the impact of COVID-19. Finally, how did risk of exposure vary across other measures of social difference? A lot of people have uh, highlighted that, that, that epidemiological data doesn't include any variables on uh, membership in visible minority groups or uh, indigenous identity. Uh, so, so for that paper, uh, the census data that I had access to had those measures. Um, so while I did not find strong differences in occupational risk of exposures between uh, of exposure between immigrants and non-immigrants and between visible minority and non-visible minority workers, I did find that um, immigrant and visible minority workers uh, who were in low-income occupations uh, tended to face a higher uh, occupational risk of exposure to COVID-19. So, so that added to the uh, intersectional nature of inequalities during COVID-19. Uh, where uh, gender, immigration, and visible minor status interact with um, income. Dr. Saint-Denis' research enhances the epidemiological research on COVID-19, and it has policy implications. I think that by mapping um, the distribution of occupational risks of exposure uh, to COVID-19 across the population, we can, uh, so the results can help guide uh, certain public health interventions, especially, uh, and, and the monitoring of, of certain patients and certain groups of workers with greater care, knowing that the occupational risk of, expo occupational risk of exposure is higher. Um, the other point that will be of interest for sociologists is that I think that the results highlight the importance of uh, dimensions other than, than um, economic dimensions uh, when trying to understand stratification dynamics. So here I mean that differences in, um, in health outcomes seem to be r really important in a time of pandemic. And the stratification literature that has focused on occupational characteristics, a large share of it has focused on occupations as, as a measure of class. Um, but I think here the, these results highlight the importance of the health-related dimensions of, of, of occupations. Read Dr. Saint-Denis' complete study, Sociodemographic Determinants of Occupational Risks of Exposure to COVID-19 in Canada, online at the Canadian Review of Sociology. The police and their practices have come under intense public scrutiny lately. Sociologists would have many responses to the current circumstances, but certainly one would be to wonder how police officers come to embody violent and racist practices. 
How do police officers understand and experience such practices in their profession? Where do these practices fit in their identities and their perceptions of the role of the police in modern societies? These are the kinds of questions that my next guest might ask. My name is Patrick Parnaby, and I'm an associate professor of sociology in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph. Dr. Parnaby is interested in the microprocesses of policing. In the article, Rethinking Role Residual, Retired Police Officers and the Inertia of Habitus, Dr. Parnaby and Crystal Weston examine one such microprocess, role residual. Dr. Parnaby explains the phenomenon. Traditionally, um, it, it's been defined as uh, the identification that an individual maintains or holds on to uh, with a particular role that has been salient to their identity long after they've actually left that role. Um, now, I've never really been overly satisfied with that more traditional definition because it's never been clear to me what identification uh, means. So I now see role residual as um, the tendency of individuals to enact or or experience um, uh, emotional, cognitive, or behavioral routines that are aligned with a prior role. That is, they were likely derived from a prior role, uh, but they are now manifesting um, in a period of time when the person has exited that role. So that's the definition of role residual but its real importance is in the context of social relationships. There's a really deeply interpersonal dynamic to it. Like these things happen in the context of relationships, in the context of families, etc. And it's not um, entirely innocuous. You know, some, some manifestations of role residual can make you laugh and think, oh, isn't that hilarious that, that so-and-so still does this. But sometimes it causes stress and anxiety in, in friendships and relationships, because at the end of the day, more often than not, these residual um, behaviors or tendencies are actually out of place, right? So they're, in a sense, they're a kind of deviant behavior. And I think the more we understand them, the more we can sort of contribute to, to making, in my case, post-retirement life a little bit easier on the people involved. To help them make sense of a role residual, Parnaby and Weston draw on Bourdieu'sian theory. Dr. Parnaby explains why. What Bourdieu's work offers, in our opinion, is um, is a brilliant integration of sort of social psychology and sociology, the mutually influential relationships between social psychological processes and social structures is what I found to be the most important and the most useful uh, when I started to think about the data um, as it as it came in, principally because it actually allowed us to highlight the the causes of rural residual. That is, it allowed us to sort of pinpoint the kinds of dispositions that we were talking about and sort through where they likely started to form uh, back in an officer's professional life. Dr. Parnaby is a specialist in the sociology of policing. So the fact that the research is about retired police officers is not surprising. But there are other good reasons to focus on retired police officers. You know, for decades, the police literature has always been um, driving home the point that if there's one occupation or one profession where the individuals thoroughly 
identify with the job, it's policing. Um, and if you read any police biographies, they'll tell you that when you're a cop, you, you quite often you eat, sleep and breathe being a cop. So we kind of had that working knowledge in our head to begin with. Um, and we had a hunch we would see it when we started to talk to officers about their retirement. And it, it didn't take long before many of them, um, often unprompted, would start to laugh and talk about the kinds of habits that, that they still had, you know, 5, 10, 15 years after they had retired. So what did Parnaby and Weston find? Well, Kristen and I found was that, well, obviously that, that, that rule residual was uh, very widespread and very common. But I think what caught our attention the most was that we were able to tease out different sort of empirical variants that really weren't that clear in the literature before. Um, you know, officers have a kind of emotional role residual. That is, they have sort of emotional dispositions that they have acquired over experience on the job that would resurface in their um, post-employment years when they were confronted with circumstances that, in all honesty, kind of reflected on the job life. Right. So so if they experience tragedy or stress or tension in their retired lives, they would therefore often respond to that environment with emotional dispositions that were clearly well honed in during their policing career. And the same can be said, for example, of sort of cognitive role residual. And that is many of them, regardless of former rank, regardless of former um, police service, regardless of of gender, et cetera, still thought of themselves as police officers. So cognitively, they still very much self-identified as being in the role, um, which I thought was fascinating because many of them even said, I will forever be a police officer, regardless of whether I have a badge or not. And there was a, there's another group that literally had behavioral forms in which they would literally do things that a cop would do. So even after being retired for 25 years, um, they would refuse to sit with their back to uh, the door at a restaurant because they have always been trained to sit where they have the greatest um, vantage point in case something goes wrong. In fact, some of the people I interviewed um, early on, especially even went so far as to pull drunk drivers over on the side of the road. And remember, they're not police officers anymore. So we discovered that residual does have these three forms. Um, and I think if I have the opportunity down the road to explore this more deeply, I'd like to go back to many of the participants and explore what the implications are for the people who are close to them. Uh, in many cases, their spouses and family, because I didn't have a chance to explore that. But can the outcomes be applied to occupations and professions outside of policing? I, I think, you know, one of the key contributions is, is, the degree to which we were enabled, we were able to delineate the, the, the three forms, the emotional, cognitive, and behavioral. Um, but I think in many cases, what our study of policing sets us up for is that we've provided an example of a group, um, as I said, where the identity is so is so deeply embedded that in many ways you could probably think of this as being a kind of ideal type. So if, if this is what happens to individuals who have been through an occupation or a profession where there's such an uh, obvious role person merger, then I would be intrigued to see scholars take this study in one hand 
and then deliberately go about trying to explore role residual among folks where the role person merger is perhaps not as obvious. So I think there's, a, there's opportunities here for comparative work and, and some people have looked at role residual in other kinds of environments that are a little less um, deeply embedded than policing, you know, athletes, for example. Um, so I would like to see a little bit more comparative work. I think that would be really useful. Um, and, uh, and I also would hope um, providing people see eye to eye with us on our use of Bourdieu that people will go sort of the next stage and that is incorporate a theory of practice in their understanding of role residual. Thus far that hasn't happened, but I think we can sort of layer in a theory of practice to get us a deeper understanding of, of where this kind of conduct or where these dispositions are literally coming from. So that, that's where I would like to see the literature go. Um, and if people can draw on our paper to get us there, then fantastic. Find the complete article, Rethinking Rule Residual, Retired Police Officers and the Inertia of Habitus, by Patrick Parnaby and Crystal Weston in the May 2020 issue of the CRS. And thanks to Dr. Parnaby for telling us about it. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks for the opportunity. This, this, was, uh, this was a lot of fun. This is not a time to commit sociology, commit sociology, commit sociology, commit sociology. Thanks, Steve. And yes, it is time to commit sociology. Lauren Montgomery is a PhD student at Carleton University. She and her colleagues, Jana Klosterman, Samantha McAleese, and Sarah Rodeman, have a piece in the Committing Sociology section of the journal's May issue. It's called Working the Project, Research Proposals and Everyday Practices for Emerging Feminist Researchers. Thanks for joining us, Lauren Montgomery. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Like many sociologists at the time, Ms. Montgomery was more invigorated than discouraged by Stephen Harper telling us to refrain from committing sociology. Yeah, um, so I actually came across, so this, this wasn't why we chose to do it, but I came across a button I had uh, from the beginning of my graduate career that actually says committing sociology because uh, a lot of graduate students at the time when Stephen Harper made that comment were very you know excited to be committing sociology and so I think um, we chose this because we really wanted to th think through you know how we do academic work and we also really wanted to sort of challenge the sort of lonely miserable graduate student stereotype and we thought that uh, committee in sociology would that sort of section of the journal would be a great place to be able to have that discussion and to sort of think through, you know, how we do academic work and what other mundane, ordinary work uh, falls within that. Montgomery and her colleagues have chosen to commit sociology by disrupting conventional ways of doing and thinking about the research process to improve the experience especially for graduate students. What we find kind of found kind of unsatisfactory and, and I still personally, you know, really am challenged by this a lot is there is a lot of isolation um, and competitiveness in, in grad school and a lot of the social relations of academia and the university really contribute to that. Um, you know, when it comes to, we see, we've seen over the years, right? Way less funding going towards arts degrees, 
we see, you know, fewer and fewer tenure track positions. Uh, and we see, you know, there's loads of research on graduate student mental health and um, the impacts that grad school can have. And a part of that is like the isolation and the competitiveness. So we tried to, in producing this project, we tried to think about ways that we've really tried to take those challenges head on. Um, and I think a lot of the conventional ways of going about doing research can, can sometimes reproduce that isolation and that competitiveness and doesn't always break, break those things down. For Montgomery and her colleagues, working the project involves recognizing that academic work entails much more than what is typically understood as academic work. We really draw our definitions of work from uh, were inspired by Dorothy Smith's work. And so, but the goal wasn't to sort of do institutional ethnography, but to open up or to detail, you know, the everyday work practices and sharing some of our own strategies and reflections to support other feminist research in sort of working their own projects. So it's sort of thinking through the everyday, you know, mundane, ordinary aspects of work. So while academic work is, it includes, you know, writing papers, submitting to journals, going to classes, um, we talk a lot about the other aspects of work. So Dorothy Smith uh, defines work as, you know, anything done by people that takes time and effort that they mean to do and that is done under definite conditions. So we included things like, you know, working the project could mean organizing a peer review session, you know, doing writing units together. Uh, but it also included for us, you know, um, supporting each other and understanding our collective agreements, um, filing grievances. We did a lot of activism together on campus. And doing that work was a part of navigating academia and navigating our own research projects as well. So um, that's what we sort of mean by working the project. In the article, Montgomery and her colleagues show how they mobilize this conceptualization of academic work in their everyday activities, particularly in proposal writing. Something we do currently, even though we're in this pandemic, is that we still, you know, we have some of us have a WhatsApp chat and we we just do units like together digitally. A lot of something that we've done for years now is doing digital units or we just check in with each other. Um, and ask how a unit went or sort of give each other pep talks, really trying to break down that isolation and that competitiveness and trying to, even though, you know, we're all competing for the, a shirt grant or an OGS grant or publications that we still circulate things to each other, we still review each other's work, we still help each other so that we all try to make sure that we all have the best chance possible of winning that grant, even though we know we might not all win the grant, we might not all get the publication. So really trying to lift each other up as much as possible, despite the fact that academia really does push towards sort of like, I would call it a, a negative competitiveness, where it can lead to sort of not always producing a, a, a really supportive environment for, for graduate students. But working the project involves more than just mutual support. It means exposing taken-for-granted methods and expectations around academic work and purposely challenging them in ways that help students achieve excellence, but in more supportive ways. I think that by, you know, inherently like getting together, being collaborative, um, intentionally looking at the social relations of academia and universities and in intentionally looking at it and going, 
you know, we as researchers are within academia. So we are both, you know, impacted by power dynamics of academia, but we are also in those power dynamics. And so how can we shift those? How can we create a more collaborative, um, fun, positive space for the researchers who uh, come after us or new students who start in the program, you know, a year after us. And for these scholars, these methods are unabashedly feminist. Being able to, you know, put in feminism into your everyday actions is being, being able to create those collaborative shared spaces that are not focused on productivity, but, um, you know, really not, not saying you have to be productive in your units, but just being there for each other and creating that collaborative space and that, that space that if somebody didn't, you know, write a ton in their unit, that's okay. Uh, and, and talking to them and providing that sort of um, support regardless of, of what's going on in the writing. Um, and I think something we just wanted people to, to take away is to really try to support other graduate students in bringing their projects to fruition. Um, there's a lot more work that goes on in academia um, in navigating difficult spaces, in navigating um, the social relations of academia that are a part of the work of doing academic work. And so just really wanting to be able to acknowledge that and highlight that and sort of bring that to light um, and to acknowledge that as, as work as well. Read the entire piece, Working the Project, Research Proposals and Everyday Practices for Emerging Feminist Researchers in the May 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. it for the first episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Come back next time for more conversations with scholars whose work appears in the CRS. I'm Karen Stanbridge. <laughs>